Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Harder They Fall, a stylish Western with Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba leading a fantastic ensemble cast. It released in theaters last month and is currently streaming on Netflix. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 86%, and the critics' consensus reads, it isn't as bold and fearless as its characters, but The Harder They Fall fits its well-worn template with style, energy, and a fantastic cast. As always, we're not concerned about what the critics think. My guest today is the film's editor, Tom Eagles. Tom, you've been working as a film editor since 2009, and you've collaborated with director Taika Waititi on three of his films and several TV projects, dating back to What We Do in the Shadows, the movie. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, Kit. Nice Nice to talk. Tom, glad to have you here. Listeners, this is your spoiler warning for The Harder They Fall. There are a lot of enjoyable twists and turns in this film, so I do recommend that you watch it before listening any further. But first, we're going to start with you, Tom. Tell me a little bit about starting out in the film business for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I started out in a slightly different career. I had this whole parallel career as a promo director. So sort of making um, trailers and title sequences and, and promos for mostly TV. And I, I did that for, I don't know, five or 10 years. But I had obviously always wanted to be involved in making films. So I got to a point where I decided I had to make a break. And a friend of mine was working as an assistant editor on, on movies. And it felt like um, the stuff that he was doing was much more interesting in terms of long-form storytelling, which I'd always wanted to do. So I, I made a break. I, I ditched the director title for an assistant title, which some people thought was kind of crazy at the time. <laughs> but- and I did... I did a little bit of assisting and learning from some amazing editors. Yeah, and then started cutting under my own, my own name. So in the early days, you were doing TV, and you're based in New Zealand at the time, is that correct? Yeah, all of that was in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, and, and I started out mostly in TV. I think my first credit was a um, kid's kind of superhero comedy called The Amazing Extraordinary Friends, which was um, a great film school because it sort of – it punched above its weight. You know, I had a lot of VFX and, and we did a lot of track shots. And, and you know, within a half hour, or like 22 minute episode, we tried to tell a lot of story. So that was a, a great place to cut my teeth. And then I, I moved on to, um, you know, things like Spartacus and, and Evil Dead, which were very fast turnaround. Uh, I think on Spartacus, we had something like 10 days to cut an episode. So it, again, it was a great kind of place to learn you had to be decisive and you had to kind of figure out what you wanted to do pretty quickly. Now I teased it in your intro, but tell us more about working with uh, Taika Waititi. I noticed on IMDb that while your first edit collaboration is what we do in the shadows in 2014, you actually had a special thanks on his film boy, which came out in 2010. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thanks is for just for showing up to um, a screening and putting some ideas in the, in the hat, which I was very gratified to see turned up in, in the movie. There was that, and I also wound up cutting trailers for the film. But I met Taika through my wife, Danelle, who's a makeup and hair designer, and she was designing on Boy. So I had met him, you know, maybe a little bit before that, but got to know him a little bit through the process. They were hanging out at our house, designing the look of the movie, or the, the hair and the makeup, at least. And so I sort of got to know him slowly through that process. Like I said, I went along to a screening and had a fairly basic idea about starting later into the movie, starting with this beautiful um, piece of camera that breaks the fourth wall that they had in, in that movie. And from there, I cut some trailers for the movie. And then I got the call up to go down to Wellington 
think uh, what we do in the shadows because I'm from Auckland. So yeah, so Shadows was kind of the beginning of our collaboration as, as director and editor. But you've been back for Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit. I mean, fantastic films you've worked on here, Tom. But talk to me a little about how Taika works and whether it is an ongoing relationship or just how he approaches his relationship with editors in general. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an ongoing relationship. I'm looking to work with him again soon. But he is someone who uh, uses a lot of editors. He uses that as a way to get kind of fresh eyes and fresh perspective on the movie. He's not someone who's really over your shoulder through the edit. So I guess the counterpoint to that is he might look for another perspective from another editor. So those first few movies we did together were all multiple editor deals. I think what we do in the shadows had three editors and I feel like we each did the equivalent of a feature film's worth. Just combing through all of the improv, I did a lot of restructuring on that movie, you know, just trying to find the right tone, working with music and, and whatnot. So that that was a thirsty film that really required, I think, three editors. And since then, I think it's just been kind of part of his process that usually he'll at least try. You know, sometimes you don't get anything out of it, but it's worth trying another perspective every now and then. Now, you didn't work on Thor Ragnarok, and I'm curious if that was sort of that large studio film just had a different approach to the movie or if you were working on something else at the time. Well, a bit of both. Because Taika's always kind of, you know, used a bunch of people, I've never been able to, you know, like hold up traffic for him. I just had to move on. But I guess the other thing about Thor was it was, you know, Marvel was taking a big punt on a guy who had only done very small indie movies at that point. And I guess maybe I'm surmising that they didn't want to take a punt on an editor who'd only done a couple of small indie movies at, at that point. You know, they have their own kind of editorial staff there, I think. It's a certain style. Although the Thor films are a type of movies, they're definitely part of the MCU umbrella, you know, and I definitely wasn't part of that at that point in time. Well, bring us up to the present then. What were you doing when you got the call for The Harder They Fall? And how did that project come into your lap? I was in LA for the whole, I was probably here for the Oscars. So it was in the middle of all of the um, the chaos around Jojo Rabbit, and, um, Oscars and BAFTAs and doing press. And, and yes, worth noting that you were nominated for an Oscar for your editing on Jojo Rabbit. Right. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was a fun time, kind of a, a magical time, I guess, your first nomination. And I got on the phone to James. Well, you know, rewind a little bit. I read the script and was very excited about the script. You know, it was this very soulful and stylish investigation into cyclic violence and intergenerational trauma. And it was an all-black cast, which, you know, I felt like after a century of kind of angry, misogynist white dudes in, in the driving seat, it was, that was kind of refreshing. And then the other thing that really drew me in with the script was the music. James had written a whole lot of needle drops into the fabric of the movie. There are only a couple of them left in the movie because he wrote so much music for the movie. But um, things like Promised Land by Dennis Brown were all sewn into the script. And so, you know, I knew that tune from growing up. My brother was a reggae DJ, so I know a lot of reggae music and kind of familiar with the ongoing discourse between reggae and westerns. So I could kind of see that, you know, it, it leapt off the page to me. And I thought that is something that I've never seen or heard in the movies. So for listeners who are not aware, James Samuel, who directed the film, is also known as The Bullets. And he's a London-based writer, director, singer, songwriter, and music producer. Yeah, I mean, I think musicality is just in James's DNA. And in fact, he doesn't really draw a distinction between um, music and dialogue and sound and action it's all part of the same 
cosmic slot for him. So um, that was very apparent from the script. There's a real musicality to the script, but also when I got on the phone with him, that first meeting, he pretty much sung the movie to me. And he's a very joyful, charismatic character. It was like being invited to the best party that you've ever been to. There's no way I could say no at that point. So yeah, so then I signed up and, and headed out to Santa Fe, New Mexico in March of 2020, originally. Uh, and I was going to be editing on site, not on set. I, I try and keep my distance from the set itself, but I was going to be in some production offices in Santa Fe and uh, we were getting set up for the first shot of the movie and COVID happened. Basically, we got shut down and we thought maybe there was a week where we thought maybe we'd get back on our feet and then the whole world shut down. So I had my family with me in Santa Fe uh, and we figured the most prudent thing once the film had closed down was to, to head back to New Zealand, which was relatively COVID-free at that time. And so we went back and, and, and I kind of thought the film might have fallen over. You know, I, I really wasn't sure if it was going to get back on its feet. I did a couple of interesting projects remote from Aotearoa. And then I got the call up that we were starting up again, it, right in the middle of COVID, which was tremendously difficult for the shooting crew. But I think we started about September of 2020. And then come July of 2021, we were, we were back shooting pickups in exactly the same spot. The only scene that we reshot entirely was the opening scene of the movie. So I was out in, in the same spot that I had started. It was kind of a surreal experience. It felt as though nothing had changed. The landscape was completely the same. The <laughs> mountains look the same. The weather's the same. But um, so much had happened in the meantime. It was kind of a trip. And so when you were editing the film, you were in New Zealand while they were filming in New Mexico for principal photography. What was your relationship with the back and forth as far as dailies or scenes or how often did James give his attention to what was being edited versus what he was doing on set? Because I know that can be a difficult balance. It can be, but I actually somehow the long distance thing played to our advantage because we were also worried about it you know it being the first time that he and I had worked together being his first big feature film I think some other people were concerned that we were in in contact and talking about the coverage so we set up a, a weekly um, catch-up on a Saturday I rolled my week I think to something like Wednesday to Sunday so I could be available to him on his Saturday and we would wind up, you know, uh, we caught up over Evercast, which is a system for sort of playing a video tap out of my avid director, his laptop, and I would play him scenes. And then we would just talk as well. I think we were able to do a lot of the kind of necessary bonding and just shooting the shit and talking about movies during the shoot process. And I've never really had that with a director. Normally they're so busy, especially with someone like James, who's wearing, count them, like four hats, director, producer, writer, composer. And he was composing during that period as well, already at that stage. But it, it turned out to work really well. And I think we just had this strange simpatico that we were, I was nervous, obviously, showing him the first few scenes that I cut, especially where I'd taken a few big swings here and there and you know maybe departed from what was on the page. But he was just overjoyed at, at what he was seeing. He was very happy. And so um, we just started out on a really good note. And it only got better from there. Well, I want to talk about some specific scenes with you, Tom. But first, let's talk about some of the overarching challenges of this film. You mentioned that James sang the script to you during that first call, which I think 
really is a nice way to think about this film. But talk to me about the changes that happened between that script you originally read and this final cut. Right, yeah. I mean, um, we did a, a little bit of shuffling through the middle of the film. We did a lot of reductions. There's a lot of stuff that just had to come out. There was a um, whole kind of Redwood debt MacGuffin. It didn't pay off, so there was no way to make it a, a satisfying storyline. And it really kind of just complicated things and drew away from the central axis of Nat Love versus Rufus Buck. And this it was quite simple revenge tale, or what seems to be on the surface a simple revenge tale. So we really peered back on that storyline. The other thing that was a challenge was there's so many characters. You know, there are something like nine or ten leads in, in the movie. Um, and the original script sort of just dropped you in it. And we found that it was hard to keep track of who was who, who was on which team. So through the process of reduction and pulling things out, we found we were able to create very strong entrances for each character. So we held off uh, introducing any of the Buck gang, the Idris Elba gang, until the second act, really, or, or, you know, about 20 minutes into the movie. And when we do, you know, the first time you meet Regina King's character now in the movie, she's shooting a guy in the face. It's a fairly memorable moment. Lakeith Stanfield is soliloquizing about nonviolence. Wiley Esco, the first time we meet him now in the finished movie, is his piece to camera. He's chewing a steak and you think he's chewing Rufus out. It turns out not to be the case. But, you know, as first assembled and written, there was a lot of exposition especially through the first act, but also through the, the middle of the movie, there's a lot of positioning, just sort of getting the gangs in place. And so we pulled a lot of that out and, and we pulled out things like there used to be a flashback showing Rufus Buck's childhood. Now we're doing spoilers, right? So you, you wind up finding out that Rufus and that are brothers and that he had a very different experience of the same father. Some of that was shown in a fairly abstract way in a flashback. And it wasn't that we were giving away too much plot, but it felt like we were just getting too close to Idris Rufus and we wanted to keep him kind of mysterious uh, and keep his intentions mysterious. So part of that was pulling out this whole debt situation with Redwood, the flashback, and also sometimes in a scene, I would just take his dialogue away. So there's a scene where Mary, Zazie Beat's character, comes into Redwood and, and tries to cut a deal with him. Uh, and I just took his dialogue away and you find that, you know, progressively she gets herself deeper and deeper into trouble and you can see her getting more and more nervous and he just doesn't speak he gives her nothing he's the rock that she, you know that she's bashing her head against um until finally he does speak and it's fairly decisive and fairly brief so it's a funny thing you know as an editor i always uh, i struggle with the idea that all we do is is cut things out you know uh, <laughs> but reduction is a very valuable tool it does more than just cut time out of the movie. You're able to clarify the storylines and the characters often just by pulling stuff away. Well, Tom, you alluded to it, and I want to make a special emphasis. What I thought was notable about this film is, with the introduction of the gangs, that the characters do, in very short, quick scenes, come across as distinct individuals on both sides of the gang in a way that really does serve to establish them and leave intact the through line of it's one gang versus another gang, rather than just lots and lots of characters with backstory all over the place. I think it's fascinating that there was more filmed about this, and then you sort of had to pull those moments out. Talk to me more about finding those moments, introducing the gangs, and whether or not that sort of puts you at the mercy of the performances you get from the actors with these characters as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we talk about 
Bill Pickett and Jim Bigwood, uh, who we kind of described as the soul of the film, the kind of, um, we described them as a C-3PO and the R2-D2 of the movie. And they provide kind of humor and levity, but they're also, that humor and levity turns to pathos and emotion towards the end of the movie. Uh, so it was important to set them up really well. And and it was a similar thing. You know, there used to be a lot of dialogue at the beginning of their first scene, and we just dropped you in it. We pulled that stuff out, and we found that if you started with Bill Pickett singing and picking people off um, with a rifle, you know, it was fairly clear who he was. He's the sharpshooter. And Jim Bigworth enters that scene with the line, patience is a virtue, right? So you get the idea fairly quickly that he's the showboat. So it was about sometimes to begin with, penciling the characters, just outlining a silhouette to get something memorable in the audience's head. And then we were able to deepen that as we as the movie progressed. But yeah, you're you're always at the mercy of the performances to to a degree. And fortunately we had great performances in this movie. I feel like people like RJ, who plays um Beckworth, they kind of buy themselves their screen time to a degree. He was so charming. And we knew we had to invest in him because Again, spoiler alert, he dies in the third act. We wanted that to be a real shock to people and to really hit them emotionally. So it wasn't just about setting up the rivalry between him and Cherokee and you know his famous last words, constantly promoting himself. It was also just about investing in his charm and his humor and making him someone that the audience really, really loved. And same thing with Bill Pickett, even though he's the straight guy. Likewise, I think uh, Regina... Uh, Trudy Smith, she's a character who almost bought herself more real estate in the movie. You know, we had scenes like the the scene where she tells Mary the story of her sister. And on paper, you could cut that scene out and the movie would still make sense. But it made so much more sense of who Trudy was and her loyalty to Rufus uh, and also the rivalry between the two women, which also pays off at the end of the movie. And we also had a lot of ad-lib and improv in this movie. So it was kind of a, a process of, you know, most of the actors were good at ad-lib, but finding those performances that still built the story was the trick. Tom, also talk to me in general terms about music and sound through the film. With, as we mentioned, James is composing. He brings this musical sensitivity to his directing. How did that impact the editing process for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was an amazing experience for me having a director who was also a composer, but also just the timeline which that played out. James was composing music right throughout, right from shooting through to the end of the movie. There was this kind of constant interplay between the picture editor and the music. He would give me a piece of music and say, work this in. (laughs) And so I would would have to, I would do some editing on the track and I would do some cutting on the the pictures to try and make that piece work. So an example of that might be... um, Guns Go Bang, which is actually the, the title song of the movie now. It wasn't initially intended as that. All he had to begin with was the beat, which is made up of gunshots. And he said to me, um, you know, try it out on the end of the Maysville sequence when Bill Pickett is exchanging fire with the white townsfolk. It probably won't work because it'll be competing with, you know, what's there. But I was able to find a, a way through cutting the track a little bit and through cutting the pictures to kind of get those rhythmic gunshots that, that are part of the beat of the music to coincide with what was going on in the story. You never wanted to bend it too far. You didn't want it to become a music video where the pictures suddenly became at the service of the music. But anywhere there was an opportunity for the two things to sing together as a kind of symphony, we always took that, that opportunity. 
Now, as an aside, Tom, I'm curious on a film like this or with post-production in general, what is your relationship with the sound editor or the folks who are working sound explicitly for the film? Are they running this through and then bringing it to you? Or is a film, is this music forward taking a different approach? Talk to me a little bit about how the team is structured behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of both. We had a fantastic sound team on this movie, uh, led by Richard King, and also um, in, incredible mixes, um, Doug Hempel and Ron Bartlett. Um, fantastic dialogue editor, Russ um, Farmaker. So um, we were very lucky to have a, like a killer team. To begin, you know, before those guys got involved, I always do a lot of temp sound work. And I felt like on a movie like this, where James is composing and he's creating such amazing music, I felt like even more I had to work harder to create, you know, some good temp sound for sequences that I felt could be led by sound. So a good example of that is the um, train sequence where Cherokee and Trudy bust Rufus, Idris Elba, off the train. It starts with this face-off. Well, it starts actually with Barrington Levy. And then there's this face-off between Trudy and the train. And I knew that, I always knew that I wanted a great deal of contrast there. So, you know, this, the train's this big, slavering, aggressive, mechanical beast, and she's just still as a rock. And so on her side, it's very, very quiet. A little bit of wind, the distant train. Um, until those things meet. And so I tried to, you know, I drove my assistants crazy trying to find the right sounds to communicate all of that. And likewise, as we're sort of building up to Rufus coming out of the box, the train and the the, the metal, the, the case that he's in, it all sort of becomes quite alive. And I did my best to temp that with, you know, the temp sounds that we had. Um, I remember using some bull roarers and, you know, a lot of when you know it's a, it's at that borderline between music and and sound, and then when Richard and his team took it over, that's when it really started to to fly. But I was able to do enough to hold the space. <laughs> and then there was a yeah, there's a always a, a little interplay. He came on just ahead of our first test screening, ostensibly to mix the film for the test screening, but really just to get started. And so I had the stems for that test screening, and I was able to work with them a little bit so that the sound of the film just got progressively more sophisticated from that point on. Well, let's talk about some specific scenes. And I want to start with the opening of uh, Nat Love with his parents. You mentioned earlier that that was reshot. What struck me was how little of Idris Elba we actually see in that scene. And I'm curious about how that scene came together, the decision to reshoot it, and what you actually had to work with. Yeah, so I mean, the initial scene was shot as a as a one, quite a complicated one with some hidden edits. You know, there were some restrictions with COVID, but also just the fact of it being a one made it an overly technical exercise. James had to use a stunt performer for the mother, and it just became very much about getting the winner as opposed to getting the emotion that we needed from that scene. So it was the only scene, and it was unfortunate that it was the opening scene. It was the only scene that we looked at and thought, we really need this scene, but it's not quite right. We labored on it for months and months. And then we finally decided, no, we need to go back out to New Mexico and reshoot it and just cover it so that we had some options in the edit. In terms of Idris and Rufus, I think 
we did actually have him. So that is him that you see at the door. When we open the door, you see his head start to lift. That's kind of the magic of editing. Like that's the only piece that we use that's really Idris. And from that point on, we cut to his back as actually a double, which I was worried about because the real Idris Elba does a lot, even with his back. Like if you look, there's a scene about halfway through the movie where he's just walking through town and even his back is, is really expressive. But I thought the double did a great job. And with that little tease of the religious album, we were able to kind of telegraph who the character was without exactly revealing him. And then the rest is just kind of suggestion. So the next scene I want to talk about is not that further into the movie, but when Nat Love faces off with the priest with the scorpion tattoo inside the church, and it leads right into the opening credits. I mean, that was a cool scene because it, it really leaned into, um, the, well, I was going to say the classic Westerns, but probably more the sort of 60s spaghetti, you know, Leone Westerns. Uh, you had these beautiful tight shots on Nat in particular, revealing the cross on his forehead and the hands twitching towards the gun. So that was, that was just fun. Having started with the very intense opening scene to then transition into something that was still very intense, but had a little bit of that fun of like a classic quick draw Western. You know, James had written into the script, he wanted the frame to freeze and the, the text to, to come up. And that was really a jumping off point for me for all the text in the movie. You know, it inspired me to go really large with the um, place names like Douglastown, Maysville, because I was a little bit worried that people wouldn't be able to tell, you know, wouldn't know that Douglastown and Redwood City were different places. So I didn't want like a, a little lower third, but also, you know, the, the opening text. Salinas, Texas, uh, sometime later, and pulling out from that cross. You know, that was something I came up with inspired by that, that idea of having this big, bold text in the middle of the movie. So we knew fairly early in the, movie, in the editing process that we wanted to be as bold as possible, that we were going to sort of break the fourth wall occasionally, and that we were going to do very stylized things like that, like a massive title filling the screen. Earlier, you spoke about the train attack where they free Rufus Buck and the train facing off with Regina King's character, Trudy Smith. Talk to me more about that entire sequence from the stopping of the train to the freeing of Rufus and the sort of the conflict that happens in between. Yeah, I mean, that was a tremendously fun sequence to cut. You know, you first you have Trudy, who's this rock, this kind of silent rock at the beginning of the sequence, and then Cherokee, who's very verbose. I think the, the most fun I had there was with the split screen. So there's a, a sequence where Lakeith is talking through the wall to the general on the inside, who's unbeknownst to us, he's got Rufus Buck locked up. I mean, that was a real challenge because Lakeith is such a free performer. He never does anything the same twice. And those two things were not shot simultaneously. You know, all the great stuff he did about Dred Scott Free, for example, he didn't do in his offlines for the general. <laughs> so I had to find, I had to find sort of look for ways to make up the reactions, the appropriate reactions and make up the time on the general side. He didn't do the countdown on the general side. So we had to, and I love that. So we had to find ways to, things to cut to on, on the general side. Cause the crazy, the difficult thing about split screen is you don't have complete control about what people are looking at. You can suggest, and I used cut somewhat on the general side to try and, because Lakeith is so magnetic to try and draw the attention to the general where we needed to. But yeah, so that, I mean, that was a, that was a really fun sequence. And then finding, I think James had said he wanted to, the split screen to wipe on. And then I found I could also wipe it off with the movement of the door as they um, step into that final carriage. So that was a lot of fun. 
and then um, I know just just fantastic performances from those two, Regina and Lakeith, as we lead up to opening the Iron Box. That sequence actually was one of the ones that changed the least, I think, because it just kind of worked from the get go. That latter half of the train scene. Well, the next scene I want to talk about is a little smaller in scope, but equally interesting, hopefully from an editing perspective. And that's when Rufus Buck does face off with Sheriff Wiley Esco. Talk to me more about the development of of that encounter. We had this wonderful um, one that went, I think, probably for the whole scene or most of the scene that sets you up for you think you're going to fall into a traditional fight sequence like a boxing match. And then Rufus grabs the gun off Trudy and suddenly we're in cuts and we're, we're cutting quite fast to some, you know, extreme close-ups of grabbing the gun and the gun smacking Wiley in the face, the tooth coming out. So we were, we were sort of into insert land. There's a great shock value in that, you know, sort of setting the audience up for one thing, lulling them into a sort of false sense of comfort that they kind of knew what was coming and then hitting them with edits and, and, and cuts. And James is very particular about the kind of point of view shot that's um, it's, it's almost like a GoPro type shot that's attached to the gun in the hand. And that took a lot of time to get right. It's kind of his tribute to Goodfellas, it's the gun butt scene in Goodfellas. But it was filmed just, it wasn't slow motion. It was just, they're just slowly bringing the gun down because they had to make contact, but they couldn't, there's no way you could hide the contact, but they couldn't do it quickly. Or they couldn't do it with any force. So it was literally about going through and finding the right frames. You know, okay, I'm going to take frame 23 and I'm going to take frame 36 <laughs> and then freezing for a moment there. So it was kind of, uh, kind of Goodfellas meets Raging Bull, actually. It's taking a little bit from the Scorsese playbook. So he was very particular about those. We eventually got those right. And then I, you know, I had some fun with Wiley's point of view once he's on the ground. I had the idea to double up the image of Rufus and kind of drift it about a little bit. So you just get this kind of slightly woozy point of view. And again, great performances all around. You see, you can see when you cut to Cherokee, his kind of reluctance or ambivalence about the violence and, and Trudy's delight, <laughs> eagerness, you know, just in one little cutaway, you kind of, you get all of that from those two. And then, the, I mean, the other thing I love about that is the score. You have this choir that transition, you know, from this quite loose, ominous background choir that kind of transitions up, starts soaring and transition up into the next scene. So that was a process that came out of, you know, to begin with temping. We had a good, good track that James really liked for that second half, you know, the next scene of uh, the characters riding across the landscape. But he found a way to kind of join the two things and propel us from one mood into a complete different mood. And we kind of snap right on the beat to, you know, from an overhead on Wiley to an overhead on Bass Reeves' wagon. So there's a lot of kind of match cuts in, in the movie that are timed, you know, to music or, or using sound to try and give you that visceral smack from one scene into another. It's interesting how you played with audience expectations on that fight scene. Another scene, I think, where the audience might think they know what they're getting when it starts would be the bank robbery in a white town. Right. I had no idea that James was going to paint the whole town white. And this is one of the advantages of having your editor a thousand miles away. I, I just laughed so hard when I saw, you know, it was literally a white town. And so that was the only gag that I added. I added the little subtitle, a white town. <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of echoing what Pickett had said 
earlier, just to push the, the gag a, a little bit over the top. Sometimes you need to do that. Again, fantastic performances, especially from Cuffy. It was, uh, you know, Danielle Debeiler. It was wonderful to make her the star of this mini kind of heist movie within the movie because you could see, you know, every beat of her performance from her frustration at having to wear women's clothing through to um, her trepidation when she steps into the bank and her kind of shame almost that against her own better judgment at what the white bank teller was saying to her and then that quickly transitioning to this beautifully controlled anger and she starts owning the scene kicking ass and taking names and that was a scene that was really fun to watch with our test audience because they were with her every step of the way and that was when we knew that we had it right so yeah and then at the tail end of that we had of course the sequence that i was talking about earlier where we really timed things to the music to propel us out of the scene so uh, there was just a really fun kind of heist movie within the movie and i do love heist movies the final scene of the movie we are serving audience expectations here in the sense that it, there is a big gunfight between the rival gangs. There are so many beats though in this and separate encounters and individual scenes. Talk to me about what struck you as the most memorable from an editing perspective of this entire sequence. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a very challenging sequence to cut. It was kind of all of the challenges of the, the movie coming home to roost in terms of the number of characters and storylines that we had to keep afloat. Um, everyone's fighting uh, in different parts of the town and so trying to find the right rhythm to intercut those things and where to place those things. James was not too precious about the scripted order. So uh, we mixed things up a little bit and we found that it was good to kind of keep everyone on the same page emotionally. So we have this really fun, I mean, the core of that to me, the part that I enjoy the most is the fight between Trudy and Mary, Regina King and, and Zazie Beats. It's been brewing a long time and it's just this kitchen sink fight. And it's done in this dye factory. So you've got all of this sort of yeah. color and explosive energy that really mirrors the fight itself. But again, you're, you're bringing out the details on that. Yeah, again, the, the production design was inspiring the choreography and the physicality that both of those performers put into it. That was kind of the fun section. You know, we, we decided to divide it up. And I think we had maybe originally scripted some of the deaths to happen during that period. And we, we kind of cleared the decks and just said, we're going to have fun for like five, 10 minutes of the movie. And then all of the deaths and tragedies and, and whatnot are going to be backloaded into the tail end of the film. So everyone's kind of, even though they're in different places, they're on the same page emotionally. Um, and that kind of leads us into, you know, the final showdown between Rufus and, and Nat. But yeah, it was, it was tricky. You know, we had bits and pieces being shot by main unit and second unit right throughout the shoot. Multiple cameras rolling all at 48 frames. So it was just a lot of material for us to go to do, go through. And there was a lot that could have slipped through the cracks. So I was talking to James constantly about what we needed for that sequence. And sometimes, you know, with his direction, directly in contact with second unit, we had a fantastic team there just to pick up any, you know, little beats that were missing. You know, so at some at one point we didn't have any shots of Carson, the kind of Rufus Buck gang sharpshooter shooting anyone. So we, you know, we had to go back and pick those up. Now the one death that does take place before that fight, and we alluded to it earlier as well, mm. but where uh Jim Beckworth uh falls at the hands of Cherokee Bill. And that really is sort of the 
Well, there's a literal powder keg earlier, but that sort of that moment propels us through the end of the film. Talk to me a little bit more about editing that key pivot point of the film. Yeah, I mean, again, it's about expectations. So we've really, really built up the, the you know, the countdown and the kind of simmering tension between the two characters and all the other players to deliver you towards what we think is going to be a traditional fast draw and then, you know, subverting it by cutting the fast draw short at three. And then we drop into the split screens, which was, again, something James had scripted. It's kind of like a, a moment of frozen time and then everything turns to complete pandemonium after that fact. So you're right, it's, it really is the pivot point. And I hope that people don't see it coming, but it sort of propels us into a, a slightly different Act 3 showdown than maybe we were anticipating. You know, the, the love gang is back on the, on the back foot. Have really been hit in their in their heart. You know, we we talked about Pickett and Beckwith being the, the the soul of the movie in a way, and hopefully you feel that when Beckwith dies. Well, and I think with all that action in between, that scene is shocking enough that it still plays in my mind when there is the final face off with Cherokee Bill, where he does kill Pickett, but is cut down by Cuffy. Talk to me about intent with those scenes on opposite ends of this sequence. So the Beckworth sequence was very planned. You know, it was always going to be that we didn't see Cherokee shoot. In fact, it's kind of Cherokee's thing. He's, almost, he's so fast, you kind of almost never see him draw his gun. And then it seemed like a good, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't planned, but when we came to uh, Cherokee versus Cuffy, it seemed like a good idea to mirror it in the opposite way. And so we play it. So you, you have a moment where you, you hear the, the gunshots go off. We play it in a tight on Cuffy. And her performance was so beautiful to me because it looks kind of like she may have been shot. You don't know who's shot who. And then we cut to Cherokee. Again, it's, you know, it's just trying to subvert those expectations where you have the opportunity. And again, to, to kind of mirror some of the things that have been set up. You know, so we, we know that Cherokee is so far, so you don't see him draw. We know that Cuffy and Beckworth have had this rivalry over who's faster. We've not seen it from Cuffy until this last scene that she is actually a deadly quick draw so again it, it was about building expectation and then subverting it so if there's anyone working on the film who over the course of it has a sense of the entire arc it would be the editor and so tom it, you clearly are seeing how all these various pieces come together for the finished product. But I'm curious if with the benefit of time, having stepped away from the movie, now it's out there, people are talking about it. Talk to me about how you feel it all came together. I mean, I feel that it came together pretty well, but I would say, I mean, it's almost the opposite for me. The benefit, a, a movie tends to age better the farther away I am from it because when you've just made it, and we have just made it, we only finished it a couple of months ago. You know, you can always see the scenes. You can see things that you you wish you could have done better. You could, you can think of another way. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes you see, I, I just see a lot of, you know, sometimes you just have to sacrifice the editing for the greater good of the story. So I see some rough edits where I know that I had to, you know, if we had a, a scene that was, um, had very complex blocking and very simple uh, coverage and then had to condense down you know, there's a scene in the bedroom between Nat and Mary, and I moved things around in that scene. It doesn't happen in the same order that it did in the script. A lot of it is gone, but also we, we changed where things happened in the room. And so for me, I can always see that when I watch it. I'm sure no one else sees that. <laughs> I hope no one else sees that. 
but I hope with time that will fade and I'll just appreciate the, you know, a beautiful movie. I think it all culminated in the right way. We, we put so much work into trying to nuance all the characters and, and the performances to the point that mainly that final um, confrontation or to put it another way, the, the meeting of Nat and Rufus is satisfying. You know, to having the right amount of information, not too much, but not too little and getting the right kind of um, sense of who they were. You know, so for, for Nat, we really worked to keep his pain and anger central, but also give him a little charm um, and also work on that love story between him and Mary. So it can feel like there's some hope for them at the end of the movie. But of course, it's all you've seen the movie. It's very open ended. You don't know what's going to happen. So we'll see. Uh, is this a film that uh, James would like to follow up on? Would he like to do a sequel to this? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but if you've watched the movie, it's, um, you know, it's very open. There's plenty of room for a sequel, put it that way. Well, uh, hopefully the numbers come out well with Netflix, since I know uh, they're the ones that get to make that final decision. But uh, until then, Tom, what's next for you? Uh I'm not sure if I can talk much about what's next. I'm, I'm hoping to do another little project with Taika, just have to get things timing right. I'm also hoping to, to stay in sync with James. And, and I have a, a project coming up with Boots Riley, who I'm very excited about working with for the first time. You know, it's hard to try and stay in sync with, with these directors that you love working with, but I'm hopeful that I can kind of do all of those things. Well, Tom, I appreciate that you're able to sync up with us. Really enjoyed talking about this film and, and all the work that you put into the editing. Uh, thanks very much for joining us here on the show. Thanks very much, Dan. It was a pleasure talking to you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're new to the podcast, please peruse our catalog. See what else might interest you. All episodes are available at the website, below the line, oneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week.